Life is a struggle. Following Jesus changes that. Some struggles subside and some new difficulties arise. Uh, how does the, what God said uh, before Jesus relate to what God says this side of Jesus coming? That's one of the difficulties which Hebrew helps us with. Probably not the most pressing in our day-to-day experience, though. Now, for some first-century Christians, the struggle was to decide whether following Jesus was worth it if it meant for them death or flogging. Others faced loss of property, either through officially sponsored confiscation or through blind eye-turned looting. Some, though, faced struggles closer to the struggles that most of us will face. The pressures of shame and criticism and desire. It, is it worth following Jesus when being publicly known as his will mean shame and disgrace in the eyes of the city? Is it worth stepping away from family expectations or from friendship group practices if it will mean criticism and ridicule for loyalty to Jesus? Is it reasonable to refuse my desires in order to please him? If you've begun to follow Jesus, Hebrews wants you to hear that absolutely it is worth it. If you're curious but not yet committed, Hebrews wants you to be absolutely clear. It will cost you to follow Jesus. And it is absolutely worth it. In chapter 1, Hebrews showed us Jesus from above. And from before. Angels have some responsibility in the world, but the Son is the absolute ruler of both the world and this world and the world to come. Because God the Son was before everything, and He sustains the universe, including us. He's superior to the angels. He now sits at God's right hand as the one who has already made purifications for sins. The salvation God spoke is God's word for these days in which we live. The salvation God spoke through his son is the word for us. Now this section we're reading this week shifts from seeing the son from above to seeing him from below. Focusing on Jesus as man among us and like us but nonetheless over us unable to help us. Hebrews quotes a part of the Old Testament, part of the spoken by God many times in various ways, part of the Old Testament, when he, he quotes Psalm 8, uh, there in verses 5-6. The whole psalm is a reflection and celebration in the privileged uh, place of men and women in Uh, God's created order. It's about our dignity and status as humans. So you glance at verses 6 and 7. Why on earth would our maker think of us at all? Why does he care? 
made a little lower than angels, crowned, now crowned with glory and honor, everything subject. It's extraordinary that God would give us humans such privilege. God noticing us at all, thinking about us, giving honor and responsibility to rule the world. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 show us male and female together made to rule in God's good creation. And Hebrews quotes the psalm that looks back and reflects on that. And says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, God left nothing outside his control. He's kind of clarifying, isn't he? He's talking about complete dominion over the created order. Absolute rule and control. Not symbolic authority, but functional expression. You know, not like the Queen as monarch of Australia. You know, she doesn't really have authority. More like the President of, of America in the Situation Room. Hopefully with a lot, you know, truly, with a lot more wisdom. <laughs> Hebrews is talking about effective rule. The relationship is one of subjection under dominion. The reality is of complete control expressed and exercised. Speaking is done, command and it's obeyed. That's how humanity relates to the world. Do you see it? Do you see everything subject, everything under the control of humans? Well, no, but yes. Is where Hebrews takes us. The focus begins to shift from humanity in general to one human in particular. From the vast sea of humanity to one son of man. Verse 8, we don't yet see everything in subjection. Uh, We humans, we exercise enormous influence on the world we live in. Animals domesticated, crops cultivated, shelters constructed, sicknesses treated, vaccines developed, death delayed... We can marvel at the extent to which humans exercise influence, but influence is not control. Our rule is frustrated, it's opposed, it's limited, it's failing. If we could have, we would have stopped the pandemic before it even started. There are a thousand other things that don't go to our plan, our efforts don't eventuate. We don't see everything subject to us. But verse 9, verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. We see a specific son of man. In the language Jesus kept choosing to describe himself as in the Gospels. We see Jesus He is the human who already fits this description. Already crowned, already ruling. So chapter 1 had showed us his rule from above. We saw him as eternal, creator, revealer, sustainer, son. This is different. Uh, Verse 9, the first time Hebrews actually describes the son by his name and calls him Jesus. He's still talking about the eternal son. But he's talking about him as the one who was made lower, though his nature was higher. And then Hebrews will continue to take that view from below. 
Now the view is from the angle of Jesus' humanity. The son who took on flesh and was born and named Jesus, who for a little while was not crowned with glory and honor. He needed in some sense to be made perfect. It's a weird deal, isn't it? Verse 10. But he needed in some sense to be made perfect. But now he is perfect. Now he is crowned. That's Hebrews' point. What makes Jesus the this, uh, this standout human? What makes him the one who is already crowned with glory and honor and authority? You kind of might expect Hebrews just to say, well, remember the above stuff. Remember where he came from. Remember who he is. But he doesn't go back to that. He doesn't go back to remind us that Jesus... Jesus is the son who created, who sustains. He's making a different point here. He's already made that point about Jesus' authority in chapter 1. He's making a different point here. So look at the end of verse 9. The glory and authority are because of the suffering of death. He came to his glory through and because of his suffering and death. His purposeful suffering and death, which express God's grace and, car- and, and kindness and generosity and love. His death is how he came to that rule. So look at verse 10. This is why Jesus' death is followed by Jesus' crime. Now, God is the one uh, he's speaking about here, the one for whom and by whom all things exist. So verse 10, it was fitting that he, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God the Father did what was, in, what was entirely consistent with his nature and character by making Jesus perfect through suffering. Specifically, verse 9, that suffering of death tasted for everyone. Through his suffering and struggles, Jesus was made perfect in the sense that he became what he was not before. He became the one who can bring many to glory. He became the one who grants forgiveness. The founder, the champion, the pioneer of salvation. God could not suffer and die for mankind. But God the Son, but the eternal Son, took on humanity, became one of us to die in our place. And he became perfect as the human rescuer when he did die and rise. I'll, say, I'll expand that again in a moment, but verse, verses 11 to 18, they begin to fill out what it means, what, what all this involved for Jesus. They show us Jesus standing among us as one of us, uh, the perfect high, high priest, propitiator, and helper. So verse 11, he chose to stand among us and with us and for us. 
Verse 12 comes from the psalm which Jesus quoted on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He stands among his people, quoting that Psalm 22, uh, as uh, he stands among his people and he calls us brothers. Verse 13 uh, comes from Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, two lines that come one after one another, but Hebrews separates them, kind of says a little bit at the end of verse 17 and then a little break and then the, the beginning of verse 18. So I will put my trust in him. Hebrews is saying that as Isaiah did centuries before, Jesus puts his hope in the Lord God. He trusts the Lord God to come through on his promises. That as Isaiah did centuries before, Jesus stands with his children, uh, knowing that judgment comes and that God will keep his people. So the, the names of Isaiah's two children uh, that are, uh, spoke to his fellow Israelites, spoke about his fellow Israelites. Um, you, you read it in chapter 7 and chapter 8 of, of Isaiah, you hear the two, two children's names. So Meir shall hashbaz means spoil spreads. And as I explains that to mean that uh, soon the, the spoil, sorry, spoil speeds, um, soon the spoil will speed in as Assyria comes flooding into the northern tribes and conquers them. His son's name said that. His other son's name, Sher Jashub, meant a remnant shall return. And Isaiah was, said to Isaiah and his contemporaries that God would rescue his people from that coming destruction. There would be, would be some that God would keep. Now Jesus, Jesus is the one who never rebelled. The one already accepted by God, accepted as holy, the one with unobstructed access to God, who deserved no judgments. He chose to stand with his people as judgment sped. With the confident hope that God would save his people. He chose to stand with his judgment deserving people. And he chose to look with confident hope and trust for God's deliverance of his faithful remnants. And standing with us meant verse 14. Becoming flesh and blood like us. Flesh and blood is not just a biological observation. It's a vulnerability statement. The eternal son was vulnerable to nothing. But when he took on flesh and blood, he became vulnerable to suffering and death like us. So verse, verse 14, since therefore the children share in blood, flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's, he partook of flesh and blood so that he could die and achieve these two things, destruction and deliverance. He took on flesh and blood to die, to set us free from death, to bring us with him to God. Hebrews describes uh, here Jesus' death as victory over and destruction of the devil. 
The devil is rendered ineffective. All his efforts are brought to nothing by Jesus through his majestic death. He delivers his people from death. And once the, so which, which, once the devil loses control of the exit, we are free to live now with our eyes on the world to come. Death no longer holds sway over Jesus' people. The last enemy no longer has the last word. I was reading up about this. Um, someone mentioned the early Stoics. Uh, they were impressed by Socrates, who was imprisoned and willingly drank poison. Uh, they, uh, when the, the, the condemnation came down... And they argued that since Socrates did not fear death, death need not be feared. He modeled not fearing death. On the ground, no fear of death meant for the the, the philosophical school, a willingness to follow through on their philosophy, on their commitment to do the right thing, even when it meant death. Jesus did something different, though. If anything, he demonstrates that death is worse than we imagined. Death apart from him. And then he destroys that terror for those who trust him. The freedom is not death doesn't matter. The freedom is death is not the end. Beyond death, well, already there's forgiveness and beyond death there's fullness. It's still grief to go to death. It's still grief for those who are left. But for those who die trusting Jesus, it's entry into his good and glorious presence. Those who have the confident hope and expectation of what occurs then, well, they're free from the fear of death. They're free to live now uninfluenced by the fact Uninfluenced by the, the fear of, what, what, what if I die by doing the right thing? No, do the right thing even if it means death. Free to live now with the paler, critic, the, the paler shadows of death, like shame and criticism. What if it's embarrassing? Well, I'll cope. What if I'm criticized? Well, that'll be okay. It's that sort of freedom. death is not the end, if there's forgiveness, if there's life with Jesus beyond, it means freedom now. Moving on to verse 16. Uh, Surely it's not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Uh, Kind of, it may seem obvious, but it's answering the question, why did Jesus not come as an angel? He didn't take their nature because he came to act for those with our nature, for human beings, not angels. The ones he helps are here described as Abraham's offspring, uh, his seed, his descendants. Now we'll hear more about Abraham as uh, someone who trusted God in uh, chapter 11. And I reckon that's what Hebrews is talking about. He's talking about Abraham as someone who inherits what God promised. Abraham, as someone who inherits what God promised 
through his trust in God who promises. It's a similar thing to what uh, Paul does in Galatians chapter 3, if you want to chase it through. Work out from Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, if you want to pull on that thread of um, children of Abraham as those who trust God and those who inherit God's rescue. Verse 17 and 18. They talk about Jesus as high priest, propitiator and helper. I'll get to propitiator. Uh, They're huge ideas. And... Uh, We've already heard a little bit of them, so I'm just going to move quickly through these couple of verses. Uh, We'll get to hear lots more about these thoughts as we read on in the book of Hebrews. Do read ahead. It's a great thing to do uh, to get the grips with the whole book. But verse 17, Jesus is the high priest who perfectly bridges the gap between humans and God. He's the one mediator between God and man. There's no one else you can go to uh, who will give you an in with God, but he is the one who you can come to. And he will give you an in with God. Jesus faithfully and perfectly serves God. He mercifully and generously propitiates him on our behalf. It's priestly activity. Now propitiation is a jargon word that Hebrews uh, will help us think, uh, think, think about. Propitiate is to appease divine wrath. To satisfy God... To satisfy God who takes sin seriously, that justice has already been done. Jesus did that. Uh, We'll hear more about how he did that by his own death uh, another day. He's a propitiator, the one who appeased divine wrath. Anger, judgment. Verse verse 18, uh, Jesus is the one who is able to help those who are tempted. I think the primary focus here is on help in bringing forgiveness for those who are tempted. That's chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Because he endured the temptation uh, to turn away from the cross, because he went to to his death in our place, he can help. Because he died our death, he is able to provide the help and forgiveness that those who are tempted need, because it places us needing forgiveness. As we're not just tempted, but we rebel you disobey i think that's the primary focus but there's another angle as well uh, one which is actually the focus in hebrews chapter 12 We've got the verses on the slide hopefully um, jesus endurance in the face of temptation even when it meant his own death well it shows us it shows us the way it confirms that uh, sin is not the best way forward It shows us that suffering as his followers is not an indication that everything has gone wrong. Far from it. It shows us that the path to glory is via suffering. It is by following him at whatever it costs us personally that we follow him to glory. So the perfect, holy, almighty, loving son, well, he could not help us like that. He could not help us like that before he became flesh and blood and suffered, died, and rose. But now that he has, he has a new perfection. Uh, 
a perfection that is among us and one of us as our perfect praise to propitiator and helper. Now he is the perfect Savior. mentioned last week that Hebrews often has these teaching blocks and then the therefore, well chapter 3 is the therefore, 1 to 6. You've seen Jesus, now therefore consider him, meditate on him, reflect on what you know of him. That's Christian meditation. Christian meditation is not mind emptied to make room for the random. It's the mind filled to make room for recognition. To make room for a, a focused thought, a dwelling on one thing, to get clear. So what Hebrews is saying here is think long and hard with focused determination. Think about the one who stands between us and God as the one who brings us to God. As high priest. The one who is sent by his father, that's what the word apostle means. See him as the one who was faithful as Moses was faithful. In some ways for us, it's no surprise that Moses is better than Jesus. But I think to hear hear what's being said here, we need to be clear that it's only a slight overstatement to say that it was basically all downhill in the Old Testament from Moses. Moses spoke about God with a clarity and a closeness. Sorry, Moses spoke to God with a clarity and a closeness that most of the other prophets didn't experience. You see that in Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. There's a slide there. You can have a glance at it while I keep talking about Moses. It's all kind of downhill from Moses, but Jesus stands on a level with Moses. Actually, not, on, not quite on a level. Jesus is more glorious than Moses. That's where, where Hebrews is taking us again. That uh, Jesus was faithful like Moses, but not just like Moses. Verse 3 and 4, the, the builder is, worth, is worthy of more glory than the house he builds. Moses is in the house. God made the house, chapter 1. He has already told us that he made it through his son. Jesus is creator of all things, including God's people. Now we've seen him as the rescuer also. He's worthy of more kudos and respect and honor than Moses. That echoes in the responsibility, verse 5-6. Moses is in the house as a servant. Christ is the son over God's house. Now, Hebrews isn't pushing Moses down to elevate Jesus. He's placing Moses accurately on the timeline and in the hierarchy. Moses is the key Old Testament prophet. He spoke words which continue to apply to us today. Hebrews will keep using words from the Old Testament. We need to hear what God says through him, but hear it as a preparatory word. A word which pointed forward. A word which anticipated the Son who is greater and more glorious. Hebrews will keep showing us those connections. He wants us to be clear. 
those ancient trustworthy messages prepared for the greater, clearer, more wonderful words spoken by the Son. The Son who has brought salvation to all who trust in Him. All who cling to Him for rescue are built into God's house. Are co-heirs with Moses and Abraham in God's great and glorious promises. End of verse 6. We are His house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If is ominous. It pushes us forward in the next section that we'll look at next week. An encouraging warning that we need to hear. Hebrews isn't content to have us look back to a moment when we had confident trust in Jesus. He'd be challenging us to consider and give careful thought to our present experience and our future progress. Because everything is at stake. Everything that matters is at stake in whether we continue with Jesus. None of us will find strength to stay by looking at ourselves. None of us will survive our struggles by looking at ourselves, by trying to summon up strength. We will find help to stay will find enabling to persevere by constantly looking to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the one to trust. He is the one to boast in. Reading this passage, it's saying get ready for when it's more of a struggle than it is at the moment by thinking long and hard and with focused determination upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in the midst of a struggle now, the big ones and the small ones, think long and hard and with focused determination about the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about who he is from above and from below. Think about what he has done. Uh, From creation to cross to his crown and his coming return. Think about what he's doing now. As high priest who has made propitiation and has brought brought that forgiveness. The one who who is helper. The perfect Holy, almighty Son became flesh and blood. He suffered, died, and rose, and now reigns. So see him. Keep looking at him. Keep looking at who he is. Keep looking at what he's done. Look at how he helps and hold firm in the midst of the struggles and challenges so that you'll be among those who he brings to his eternal home. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this word about your Son, for the salvation that you have brought in him. Thank you that he is now the perfect Savior, the one who stands between us and you to bring us to you, the one who faced your wrath and anger at our rebellion and has brought forgiveness the one who is able to help by showing us the way, the way for life while we wait, and the goodness of what awaits for us beyond this life. Please strengthen us with that sight. Strengthen us to live, to please and honor the Lord Jesus. to live lives shaped by gratitude towards the one who has brought this great rescue. And Father, please keep convincing us of how good it is and keep giving us opportunities to speak about how good it is to those who don't yet know and don't yet trust that they too may know Jesus as their wonderful Savior. In him, amen.